Welcome to the Valley Point Podcast in the series, Not Your Average Joe. This week, our big idea is choose to be above average with your family. We welcome guest speaker Bethany Cook as she spends some time in Genesis chapter 37. Enjoy and thanks for listening. Good morning, Valley Point. Um, As Eric said, it is really good to be back. It's good to see Eric and Tanya and to be back with you guys. And of course, uh, Steve and I had to drive past the spot where the magic happened last year, um, the corner of Quince and Locust Street. Um, It is so good to be back with you guys, uh, especially after listening to Eric's message last week and just hearing what God is doing here. It's amazing. Uh, just talking about how much you guys have even grown in size since last year and how God is on the move as you are getting ready for your real home. And uh, I I told Eric, I promise I will be praying for those holy and set-apart sewer lines that you guys were talking about last week. Um, But it is a great privilege to be here and um, to get to talk a little bit about Joseph. And um, there's something about getting married that makes you evaluate your family in a way that maybe you've never done before. And um, Steve and I have been having a lot of conversations around his family and my family and the kind of family that we want to build together. And um, it's really interesting that... uh, You don't realize how dysfunctional and odd your family really is until an outsider comes in and gets to see it all firsthand. And you realize that stuff that had just kind of become normal is really not normal for everyone. And um, we've been having a lot of good conversation around that. And I think um, in looking at Joseph's life, we're really going to get to see a family that kind of takes the cake in terms of dysfunctional Um, I doubt that any of us have a family quite as um, inside out and upside down as Joe's. And uh, we are going to be looking at Genesis 37. If you have your Bibles with you today and you want to turn there, I will catch up with you in just a second. But Genesis 37... And um, as the the big idea of the series really is that we are choosing to be above average by believing that God is alive and active and up to something significant in our lives. And um, today um, we get to, to start looking at a specific arena of life that Joseph was above average and, and he made a choice and put in some hard work to get there, um, but he is above average in his family. And just like Joe, we can choose to be above average in our families. And by looking at Joe's life and uh, some of the members of his family, um, we can kind of learn what not to do um, and, and look to Joe and see what he chose to do in order um, to make sure that he rose above the dysfunction and craziness that was his family. So uh, we pick up the story in Genesis 37, and we read that um, Joe, the first chapter in his life that's recorded in Scripture, he's 17 years old, and um, this is what we find out about him. Genesis 37, uh, verse 1, Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed in the land of Canaan. Jacob is Joe's dad, and this is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the son of, sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. 
So the very first thing that we read about Joe is this like flaming red flag that something is not right. So he is out in the fields. He's hanging out with his half-brothers. Later we'll find out they are his much older half-brothers. And they are the sons of dad's third and fourth wives. If that is not an indicator that this family isn't exactly textbook or ideal, I don't know what is. Uh, but dad is, uh, has four wives. And in our context, in our culture, we would think, okay, dad's had a couple of marriages and um, haven't gone quite according to plan. But in this situation, it's a little more like big love. Has anybody seen that? <laughs> you know, dad has four wives at the same time. And they are all living in the same place, and they're all raising their kids together, and it's just a breeding ground for dysfunction and family rivalry and jealousy and brothers undercutting each other and the wives um, cheating each other and lying and manipulating. It's just a mess. And this is the family context that Joe is really growing up in. So um, we, we first find him. He's 17. And we're going to read in a minute that he was born to his dad in his old age. And so his brothers are really adults. And they're kind of running the family business. And he's along for the ride. And um, he is spending some time with them. And they, they come home from a hard day's work. And dad wants a report. How to go? What happened? And I could just imagine that the brothers are like, yeah, dad, everything's good. We got it taken care of. No worries. And then Joe does what every little brother or little sister does at some point in their lives, and he completely throws his older brothers under the bus. Well, Dad, that's not exactly true. I mean, they're screwing around, and they're not doing this, and they're doing this wrong, and and he just totally gives Dad a bad report and throws his brothers under the bus. And um, as Eric said, I'm the oldest of seven kids, So that meant I had six younger siblings who did that to me often. Um, It was completely undeserved, of course. But um, I have one sister in particular, and um, we still tease her. She is very black and white, right and wrong, and she tried to be the voice of reason in my life. And when that didn't work, she became the voice of accountability. And uh, I'm pretty certain that my parents were giving her a kickback in her allowance uh, just to keep them apprised of what I was plotting next. But um, for those of us who have had younger siblings, you know what it's like when they totally out you. And um, Joe's brothers were not happy with him. Um, They were very upset with him, but Joe doesn't really do himself any favors when he um, tattles on them. And then, then it gets worse. And it isn't something that Joe does. It's actually something that his dad does that brings things to a boiling point. And um, it's when dad chooses um, to make it known to the family that Joe is his favorite. He's got 12 sons, but Joe's the favorite. And if you look at verse 3, in in chapter 37, verse 3, it says, Now Israel loved Joseph. Israel's just another name for Jacob, Joe's dad. He says, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. 
Now, this robe was elaborate, and it was a symbol not just of, hey, I'm dad's favorite, not just this badge of honor, but um, some commentators even believe that dad is tipping his hand here a little bit to say that of all my sons, um, a double blessing, a double portion of inheritance will be given to Joe because he's my favorite. And that was something that was traditionally reserved for the oldest sibling. Um, And we'll take a look at more family dysfunction, but the first three brothers had actually disqualified themselves from that inheritance. And so it's kind of up for grabs at this point who dad's going to pick. And when he gives this robe to Joe, it's almost um, instigating a a sibling revolt, if you will, that the baby brother is the one who's going to get this blessing. And Jacob makes it even harder on Joe by giving him this robe. And Joe, lacking in emotional intelligence, doesn't really handle the situation very well. So when he um, has a dream later on, and and it's this not-so-subtle symbol that um, things are eventually going to lead to his brothers bowing down to him as their leader, And he, um, as any 17-year-old lacking in emotional intelligence will do, decides that he's totally going to rub it in his brother's face. And he regales them with every detail of this dream of how someday they're going to bow down to him. and, And they are not happy. In fact, before that even happened, he says in Genesis 37 verse 4, When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and couldn't speak a kind word to him. Now Joseph begins to rub in their face that, hey, it's not just dad that picked me, but apparently God is also communicating that I'm going to rule over you guys. And um, they're just not happy with that. Um, Their hatred is mounting, and you would think that, you know, clue phone is ringing when when the brothers didn't respond well the first time. The second time Joe has a dream, you think he'd keep that to himself, you know, tell his buddies at school, uh, tell dad in a quiet space away from the rest of the family, but not Joe. Now, Joe decides he's going to tell it again. And he gets this second dream, and this time it's symbolic not just of his brothers bowing down to him, but his whole family, his mom and dad as well. And it's interesting to me because um, Joe's dad, Jacob, has been um, just textbook passive parent, totally unengaged. Things blow up, and he looks the other way. And so it strikes me as interesting that when Joe tells his brothers about this dream, the second dream, it gets so bad that Jacob actually steps in. Just to give you a little context, Joe's older brother Reuben actually has relations with his stepmom just to prove to all the boys that he's He's the top dog, he's the oldest, he's the big guy on campus, and Jacob says nothing. Then the next two brothers, Levi and Simeon, their sister is really, really wronged, and in this weird and misguided sense of revenge, they go in and slaughter an entire town, and Jacob says nothing. Just to give you an idea of how passive he is, and yet these brothers are so angry with Joe that dad finally decides to check in and say something. 
And he tells Joe that he needs to just keep his distance and quiet down and let's not talk about those dreams anymore. And I think that it's this crazy um, boiling pot of emotions and anger and hatred towards Joe that keeps him at home the next time the brothers go out to the field to watch the flocks and the herds and kind of take care of family business. So they go out and they're in the fields and um, uh, some time has passed. And I think Jacob's trying to give his older boys some time to cool off. And then he needs a report. What's going on? How are things? And he decides to send Joe to check in on his older brothers. And this is when it reaches its climax. And we read in Genesis 37, verse 18, that when they saw him in the distance, before they reached him, they plotted to kill him. And they said, here comes that dreamer. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him, and then we'll see what comes of his dreams. I mean, these brothers really don't have anything that's out of bounds. They have slaughtered an entire city. You just don't expect them to turn on their own family. They apparently hadn't cooled down, and... um, Joe shows up, and, and it's game on. We're done. We are sick of this kid. Let's just be done with him. And it's then that Reuben, the oldest brother, steps in, kind of. You know, this half-hearted, halfway intervention, and he tells the guys, why don't, you know, they have this three-step plan, right? We're going we're gonna to kill Joseph. We'll throw him in a cistern, which is this huge underground tavern that, or a cavern that would collect water. And, um, and then we'll take the coat back to dad, dip it in blood, and, and we'll explain what happened to Joe. Well, um, he says, why don't we just skip step one? I mean, we'll throw him in the cistern and uh, just leave it at that. And then it's not on us. Meanwhile, he's plotting to come back and rescue Joe later. So the brothers go along with that, and um, they grab Joe, they throw him in the cistern, and then they kind of go on their, go into their routine for the evening. Some of the brothers go out and watch the herds, and the rest sit down and have a meal. And I can just imagine that Joe is in the cistern below them, and I'm sure his... um, his uh, rantings and ravings probably spanned from, you know, threats. The next time I get my hands on you, I am so telling dad, you guys are dead. Do you know what he's going to do to you? Um, you know, from that to like, oh, I swear, I'll never say anything. Just let me out. I'm sorry. I know I've been obnoxious. But he is going on and on and on. And, and I think at some point they just get tired of listening to him because Judah, um, kind of the fourth brother, uh, sees some merchants off in the distance and decides, hey, guys, you know, instead of killing them, he is our brother after all. I mean, what if we just sold them? You know, we get to get some extra spending money. We get rid of Joe. No harm, no foul. And the brothers go along with this, and, and so before Joe really knows what hits him, they've drug him up out of the cistern, they've sold him off to these merchants, and he's on a long walk toward Egypt, and then Reuben gets back. <laughs> and he realizes what happens, and he is panicked. Well, I want to put a pin in the story right there, because I feel like 
Jacob and Joe's family have given us such a picture of dysfunction um, that we can kind of reverse engineer some things. They almost put on this perfect picture of what not to do as a family. And so let's take a look and see what tools we can glean from them um, and almost doing the exact opposite to ensure that our families look nothing like that one. Well, for those of us who are leading a family, for moms, dads, husbands, wives, for those of us who are leading a family, I think there are some great takeaways here where we can choose to be above average in our family by having the crucial conversations. Have the crucial conversations. I mean, when you look at how Jacob led his family, that is one thing that is totally lacking. You know, when Reuben, Levi, and Simeon, the three oldest boys, um, just took some serious uh, liberties and stepped way outside of the bounds uh, of just moral conduct, let alone what God had called them to, and, and Jacob says nothing. You know, it is always, it seems like, uncomfortable and awkward and poor timing when you have to have those hard conversations as a family. And instead of sucking it up and doing what he needed to do as the leader of the family, Jacob just decided, you know what, we're going to sweep that under the rug and we'll just let it die down and we'll be fine, we'll just move on from here. I mean, another opportunity for him to have had a crucial conversation would have been when Joe starts sharing these dreams. Jacob had received dreams from God. He had heard from God in a really clear way in dreams that completely changed the direction of his life. And had he been a dad who was willing to sit down and have conversation, that would have been a fantastic opportunity for him to coach him in the ways of God. And to teach him how to posture himself in a way where he could listen and hear God's voice and obey in a humble uh, manner rather than, than bragging about it. But Jacob totally um, took the passive parent role, was disengaged, and chose not to have those conversations. And the fallout in his family was huge. Well, the same is true for us. Um, I don't know about you guys, but in my family, it always seems like the worst timing when something goes wrong like this. Um, it's, it's always when um, there's too much to do and too few hours to do it, or the family member is an hour drive away and it's just inconvenient, um, or it's awkward and I don't know how to start, or I'm not sure if I'm the best person to have the conversation, but somebody has to say something. And it's easy in those situations to just say, you know what, we'll worry about it later. You know, we'll let everybody cool off and we'll just kind of forget about it. And if it comes up again, next time I'll say something. Is I want to challenge you to have the crucial conversations with your family. And if you can do so before things come to a boiling point, it is so much better. Parents, if you can talk with your kids as they're making decisions now about how to choose wise friends, how to, how to live in a way that honors God in small things, then you get to cut it off at the past so that it never gets to a point where you're stepping into a crisis moment like that that was completely avoidable had they made better choices. But have the crucial conversations 
Well, next, for those of us who are leading families, uh, I would say we get to choose to be above average by being a cycle breaker. Be a cycle breaker in your family. Now, I, um, I look at Jacob's life and I wonder, how in the world did you let things get so bad? I mean, mass murder, incest, I mean, selling, your, your kids are selling off their siblings, like, that's about as low as you can go, and how, how in the world did you not intervene at some point? And when you look back a generation, two generations, you begin to see that that favoritism and jealousy and manipulation and passive parenting were all these patterns that Jacob's dad Isaac and his grandfather Abraham had carried out in their parenting and their leading of their families as well. It seems like every family has something like that, some cycle or pattern, and oftentimes we just kind of chalk it up to like, oh, that's just how the Cook family is. Or, oh, that's just, my, my parents always say, well, that's just the pipping way. And I don't know what it is in your family. I don't know if it's uh, something as serious and severe as addictions um, or something that seems insignificant, like people-pleasing or an inability to say no or workaholism or anger issues and outbursts. But it seems like every family has something And it's really easy to think, you know what, that's just my family. I grew up with it and I survived. I'm not not so bad. It'll be okay. And and we think that God's going to give us some kind of free pass that we get to um, explain to the Lord, well, you know what, that's just kind of how my parents raised me and it was okay and it'll be fine. And my kids will figure it out and we'll, we'll all be good. It's not a big deal. But the problem is that we are held accountable for how we lead our family. And there is no free pass because mom and dad got it wrong in that area. You know, I um, have the privilege of being um, the granddaughter of someone who chose to be a cycle breaker in a pretty significant way. Uh, My grandfather grew up in a home where he had an abusive alcoholic as a father And he was actually kicked out when he was in high school. And it was when he was in the military as an adult that he met Jesus Christ. And he and my grandmother drew a line in the sand and said, that's it. That cycle ends now. That will not mark our kids. That will not mark our grandkids. We're going to raise our kids different. We are going to be the cycle breakers so that it ends here. And it's amazing because you see the difference in the life trajectory. This branch of the Pipping family tree that my dad and his siblings all walk with God. Not to say that we don't have other dysfunctions, but we all, they all walk with God. And, and me and my other cousins and my siblings, we all know God. And you look at my grandfather's siblings and where their kids are, and it is just worlds of difference. I am the product of a cycle breaker. And there are cycles that Steve and I will need to break in our family. But it's when I look at my grandfather and I see what's on the line, when I see the difference that it can make over generations, that I am motivated and encouraged to put in the hard work to be a cycle breaker. 
I said earlier that Steve and I have uh, been talking a lot about our families, and a lot of that happened when we were in a premarital uh, counseling program at our church. And um, some of you guys may not even know what the cycles or patterns are in your family. And I would really encourage you, something that's been helpful for us in this season is meeting with a Christian counselor um, to talk with someone who's outside and objective and Sometimes we get so caught up in a dysfunctional pattern, we don't know what's normal and what's not normal anymore. And when you can meet with a Christian counselor and have them help you to identify those patterns, um, it's amazing how then you can put an action plan together of, okay, I see it, and I see the fallout, and I see the consequences, and this is how we're going to change that in our family. Um, For me, it's been meeting with an accountability partner and inviting Steve into the situation. How am I doing? You know, I know that this is something I struggle with, and have you seen me doing that recently? But find an accountability partner. Invite your family in. Ask for status updates. How am I doing? Do you see progress? Do you see growth here? But do what it takes to become a cycle breaker in your family. Well, secondly, not all of us are in a position where we lead families yet. And so um, for those who don't lead families, um, we may feel like, okay, I get a free pass for a few years yet. But, but all of us are in a family. And I would say a majority, if not everyone in this room, at some point has been wronged by someone in their family. Just like Joe, he... he Certainly didn't deserve to be sold into slavery, but he wasn't entirely blameless in the situation. But Joe suffered some serious wrongs against him at the hand of his family. And as you guys continue to see um, his life unfold in the coming weeks, you will see that he made some serious choices to be different to say no to crazy, and to rise above that average, that status quo that his family had set. And And so for those of us who have been wronged in our family, if we were to look to Joseph, I really see two things that play out. And some of this you'll see coming in future weeks. But the first is to own our part, however small it might be. If you've been wronged by your family, you can choose to be above average by owning your part, however small it might be. Like I said, Joe did not deserve to be sold into slavery, but he was definitely an obnoxious, full-of-himself kind of kid um, that instead of paying attention to the situation and um, kind of keeping his head down, um, he chose to step into difficult situations and make it harder on himself. And I know that sometimes when we look at a massive family fallout and we think, whoa, <laughs> Um, I, I may have done this much out of this much, and I don't, we may or may not feel a need to really own that part, but it's in owning that part that it, it opens the door to reconciliation. I know that in situations where I have been the majority offender and someone may have done something very tiny and insignificant to set me off, but that person comes to me and apologizes it immediately turns the conflict on its ear. I've watched that happen in some pretty significant family uh, conflicts, and it's amazing to me how um, the person who has been wronged the least apologizes and owns their part, that the other person is totally unarmed. 
willing to have a conversation and perhaps pursue reconciliation for the first time. And maybe an even more important reason to do this, whether the person who has wronged you is willing to reconcile or not, is that when we come before the Lord and we own our part, um, it involves humility. And God, the Bible tells us that he is faithful to extend grace and forgiveness to us. And when we do that and we've accepted and experienced grace, it is so much easier to extend it to those who have wronged us. It doesn't necessarily make everything better as far as our family goes, but we are in a better place. We've experienced grace, and we've owned our stuff, and we're ready to move forward and be gracious to those who have wronged us. Well, secondly, for those who have been wronged in their family, we can choose to be above average when we choose to let it go. And I know that that is an impossibly simple statement for something so difficult. I know um, that there have to be people in this room, much like uh, the community where I lead at home, who have been um, abused and in some really, really hard situations. Situations that have marked you for your life. And to say simply, just let it go, it sounds not only callous and naive, but even insensitive. And so I'm not saying this in a flippant way that you can just turn a light switch on and let go of anything that has hurt you or scarred you. But what I mean when I say that is that we can choose to be a forgiver. And um, Eric is going to talk about that a little more um, in the future, but we can choose to be a forgiver. We can, through a relationship with God and a lot of hard work, we can choose to not let that be the thing that ensnares us in a net of bitterness and resentment and anger. I don't know if you guys have ever met someone like that that has just kind of lived in that place, and you talk with them, and the chip on their shoulder is almost visible. And it's, it breaks my heart when I meet those people because I know that God's desire for them is for them to find freedom and hope and joy None of that is possible when we are holding with both fists to that thing that has hurt us and we are harboring anger and resentment in our hearts towards the one who has hurt us. But when we can choose to let that thing go and instead to hold on to the Lord and the plan that he has for our life, which includes healing and redeeming really rough situations for God's glory, that's when we can move forward and experience that joy and hope that God has for us. Well, I promised to come back and close out the story. And so if you um, look at uh, verse 29, Reuben comes back and he sees that Joe is gone. And, and the author of Genesis puts it this way, that when Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and he said, the boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Reuben in that moment experiences what many of us have experienced, that that crucial conversation, that pivotal moment of action is often a one-time thing. 
You have one moment to make that decision, one moment to have the conversation, one moment to do what's right, and when it's done, it's done. There is no rewind and replay. There is no silver bullet. You don't get to go back and redo things. You act in that moment or you don't. And you live with the consequences. And Reuben is feeling right here this full weight of what happened. And the story continues to play out where in those moments, uh, Reuben, Reuben had a choice where he could either choose to confess and own what he did and seek forgiveness from his dad or to just cover it up. And he and all of his brothers chose to just cover it up. And they go home and they take Joe's robe and they dip it in the blood of a goat that they'd killed and they show it to their dad and, and Jacob sees it and kind of connects the dots that they wanted him to connect. And he weeps. He rips his clothes. He's mourning. He's living the nightmare that parents who have lost a child experience. And it's in that moment of inconsolable grief where there is no hope and no light that the brothers continue to choose to cover it up. None of them say a word. None of them own up to it. None of them offer him the smallest hope that Joe is going to be okay. He's not really dead in the desert somewhere. He's actually in Egypt. It wouldn't have changed the situation. It wouldn't have magically fixed anything, but at least it would have offered a shred of hope in an otherwise hopeless situation. Well, when we do things in our families that we regret, if we make choices that we live with later, things that we said and shouldn't have said or we didn't say and should have said or, or moments where we just looked the other way and we should have stepped in and acted. Like Reuben, there are times where we make those choices. And then we're faced with the same options that Reuben had where we can either choose to own it and confess it and seek forgiveness we can come clean and seek forgiveness, or we can choose to cover it up. And for those of us who want to be above average in our families, we have to make this choice when we get it wrong, that we are willing to come clean and seek forgiveness. And just like in this situation, it doesn't magically fix everything. It doesn't um, put everything back together and get you back to square one to start over. But you know what? It offers hope. And one of the things that you guys will see continually play out in the story of Joseph is that God, who was living and active and up to something significant in Joe's life, is the same God that we serve. And just like in Joe's life, where there was a lot of fallout, there was a lot of baggage, and yet God redeemed that situation and made something good of it, he can do the same in our life. And so when we make choices that we regret and we're willing to confess and seek forgiveness, it opens the door for redemption, for God to come in and take this mess that we have made and use it for something significant. Now, I know that that is kind of a, a quick flyby for something that many of us struggle with at a very deep level, but 
I want to challenge you guys. These are some hard decisions. There's some strategic and crucial decisions that every family has to make. And when we get this right, and when we respond correctly, even in the moments where we get it wrong, we are opening the door for God to come into our families and do something amazing for him to help us to say no to crazy and to rise above average and the status quo and the dysfunction that has kind of become normal for us and for God to really be on display in our families. I want to close us in prayer, but I challenge you guys, um, have some conversations when you get home. Um, Think about maybe some of these things that stuck with you or some of the things you feel like you're doing right. That's always encouraging when I feel like, hey, I may have all this to work on, but at least we're okay in this area. But have some conversations and choose to be above average in your family. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the privilege to be a part of the Valley Point family today. And Lord, we know that um, you want to be working in our lives and you want to be doing something amazing and significant in our families. Lord, I just pray for the courage and the bravery that it takes to have honest conversations and to do the hard work to move towards that. Lord, we promise to give you all of the glory and all of the honor um, as you redeem and restore our families. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We'd also love to have you join us on any Sunday morning as well at the Garnet Valley Middle School at 915 or 11 a.m.